Good morning again, St. Paul's. So uh, we have reached a very special point in the church calendar because Easter is only two Sundays away. Uh, but before that victorious celebration of the resurrection, we have to go through the cross. Uh, and that's what we're going to be focusing on uh, this week and the next. And specifically, what we're going to be focusing on are Jesus' last words. The Gospels record Jesus as saying seven different things things when he was on the cross. Um, and I want to focus on those things because I think they give us special insight into what God is like, into who God is. I say that for a couple reasons. Uh, the first reason has to do with something the writer of Hebrews said uh, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Uh, he or she said, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Now, what the author of Hebrews is saying there is that, you know, throughout history, throughout what we now call the Old Testament, God spoke through prophets in various ways, but now he's spoken to us in a very special way. Uh, in a supreme way, and that way is through the person of Jesus Christ. And there's, there's something about the way that he's spoken to us through Jesus that is a clearer representation of who he is than anything else that's come before. The Son is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being. The exact representation of his being. So, Jesus' last words on the cross are a powerful insight into who God is. One, because it's Jesus who's saying them. And Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. But uh, not only that, a strong argument can be made uh, that Jesus most fully revealed the character of God at a particular moment in history. And that particular moment would be the moment of the crucifixion. Um, the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2.2, uh, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So you notice there, he's putting this special emphasis on the crucifixion. There's something about that that is worth preaching about primarily, giving primacy in preaching. Jesus himself also seemed to think that the cross uh, was the pinnacle of his ministry. You might notice that at various times throughout the Gospels, he talks about how my hour has not come. And when he talks about that, he's, he's talking about how he knows that he's going to die. His hour is his death. Um, and there are places where he seems to say that the very purpose of why he's come is for his death. Uh, in uh, Mark 10, 45, he said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this ugly, horrific event of the Son of God being nailed on a cross is in large part why Jesus came to earth, uh, and it's possibly the greatest insight that we have into the character of God, into who God is. So in light of these two facts, Jesus is the exact representation of God's being, and the cross is the climax of Jesus' ministry, we really should pay special attention to what he said on the cross. And there's a third reason, too, uh, 
which is that when you think about it, what we say when we're under extreme stress reveals a lot about who we are, doesn't it? Uh, when we're under a lot of stress, parts of us that we can usually keep hidden rise to the surface. Uh, stress can make people who are ordinarily very uh, calm and kind and gracious nasty. Uh, it can make people who seem very calm and self-assured fall apart. It can uh, make people who would never uh, utter an expletive come out with a blue streak of profanity. Um, and you know, that's why we say that in stressful situations, you find out what you're really made out of, right? Um, or that people show their true colors in a crisis. And so <clears throat> the cross is the supreme revelation of what God is like. Because on the cross, we have Jesus enduring this incredible amount of stress. So we have the one who reveals the character of God under incredible amount of stress and showing God's true colors. Um, and so what he says definitely deserves our special attention during that time. So like I said, there are seven things that the Gospels record Jesus as saying. No one Gospel records all seven. That's If we look at them all together, we find these these seven things. And this week, we're going to look at three of them. Next week, we're going to look at another three. And then on Good Friday, we're going to look at just one. Um, but before we do that, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time that we have uh, to reflect on the cross and on who you are and who you revealed yourself to be uh, through the cross. And God, I pray that as we look at these things that you said, that um, we would be affected by them, Lord. Um, we don't want to just have intellectual knowledge, Lord, but uh, we want to be transformed by the things that we know. And uh, if we really understand these things that, that you have revealed about who you are, they should be transformative in our lives. They should have power. And, and so I pray that they would um, help us to be attentive to whatever it is you might want us to hear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 23, starting in ver verse 32. Uh, Luke 23, verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him, Jesus, to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. So, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. I read beyond the words that Jesus said there uh, because I wanted us to be reminded of exactly what they were doing that Christ was calling for them to be forgiven of. Uh, they were, of course, crucifying him, which is bad enough, no matter what else was happening. Uh, but the details in those next couple verses, I think, really help us to show just how horrible the people were being to Jesus. Uh, you know, it says, 
the people divided up his clothes. Now that detail increases the horribleness of the scene for at least two reasons. One, it's a reminder that Jesus is naked. You can't cast lots for somebody's clothes if they're still wearing their clothes, right? Um, so there's an incredible humil humiliation going on here. Uh, and two, it shows just how profoundly disrespectful the soldiers were. Because if you're casting lots for clothing while somebody is dying, you're basically saying, this fabric is more important to me than you are. Um, can you imagine how hurtful it would be if you were on your deathbed and people were coming into your room and rather than acknowledging you or praying with you or holding your hand or something like that, they were just rifling through all your stuff. And uh, you're, you're sitting there in the last moments of your life in pain and you're just watching people leave with your things. Um, that that's what they were doing to Jesus. We're told that as Jesus, the naked Jesus, was being crucified, that the people stood watching. And I can't help but notice that it doesn't say anything about the people mourning or crying or caring or trying to help. Right? It just says the people stood watching. And maybe some of them had compassion for Jesus. Maybe some of them prayed for him. Uh, maybe some of them were horrified by what they were seeing. But all we're told is that they watched. And I don't know about you, but if I was suffering the agony of crucifixion, I don't think I would want a bunch of people just watching. But that's what they were doing to Jesus. And of course, we're told that some people did more than just watched. Uh, the rulers sneered at him. The soldiers mocked him. And they both challenged him. They made fun of him. You know, they're like, oh, come on. If, you're, if you really are the Christ, then save yourself. That's what they were doing to Jesus. And yet, Jesus says, in the midst of this incredible dehumanization, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. You know, part of me wants to say, Jesus, I think they do know what they're doing. Right? They know that they're crucifying you. Uh, they know that they're treating a person like he's less valuable than fabric. They know that they're watching a person suffering like it's personal entertainment. They know that they're mocking a dying man. They have to know those things. And I don't think Jesus would disagree. But what he means is they don't realize just how awful what they're doing is. Now, personally, I would think that you'd have to be pretty desensitized, pretty far gone not to realize that treating another human being like that is really bad. You know, whether he's the son of God or not, it makes it worse that he's, he's the son of God. But whether he's the son of God or not, you'd have to be pretty far gone. And my natural inclination, in my natural human state, is to say, well, if you're that far gone, if you're that desensitized, I don't want to see you forgiven. You know, I don't want to see you get a second or third or fourth chance. But Jesus isn't like me. Jesus wants these people to experience forgiveness. How how crazy is that? He's saying to God the Father, don't hold this against them, please. And as he says that, we need to remember, this is the representation, the exact representation of God's being. This is what God is like. 
Our God is a God who would rather see humanity experience forgiveness and mercy than judgment and destruction. Now, that's not to say that judgment isn't real, that it isn't something that we should be concerned about at all. Um, but what this is telling us is that God would much rather us experience heaven than hell, to put it simply. And if Jesus is the exact representation of God's being, I think we can say that definitively. It's amazing. So let's read a little further to get to the second thing Jesus says on the cross. This is uh, continuing on to verse 38. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Are you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? <clears throat> we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Now, this saying of Jesus, much like the first one we just talked about, is this incredible demonstration of grace. We don't know much about this criminal that Jesus speaks to, but one thing we do know for sure is that he thinks that this punishment is a, a worthy punishment for his actions. Right? He says, uh, we are getting what our deeds deserve. And I suspect that if this criminal thinks that crucifixion is a worthy crime for his actions, he probably didn't just steal a loaf of bread. Right? He's probably, he probably did something really bad. In fact, uh, the Greek word that's used in Matthew and Mark's accounts uh, to describe these men is a word that implies that they were violent criminals. It's the same word that's used for Barabbas, who the text tells us uh, did murder some people uh, in an uprising, in a rebellion. So we don't know exactly what this criminal did, but we know that it wasn't a small thing. And yet, in these last moments, Jesus pardons him. He basically says, what you have done will not be held against you. Today you will be with me in paradise. And again, the exact representation of God's being demonstrated for us. This is what God is like. God's willing to give paradise even the criminals who deserve crucifixion. Wow. That is scandalous grace. I do think, though, we also need to learn from what Jesus doesn't say in this exchange. Uh, notice he only speaks to one of the criminals, right? Uh, both criminals speak to him, but only one criminal is given the assurance that he will experience paradise. So even though God would rather we experience forgiveness than judgment, uh, and even though God is willing to give paradise to someone who deserves crucifixion, it is possible for us to cut ourselves off from that experience of forgiveness and paradise. One criminal is pardoned, the other is not. So what makes the difference? Well, both criminals ask to be saved, but the first one does it with a very different attitude, right? Uh, his, re his request for salvation is really a challenge. Come on, you know, if you're really the Messiah, then show it. Save me and save yourself. And he hurls insults at Jesus before he even asks. 
Not a good way to lead into asking for salvation, <laughs> hurling insults at, at Jesus. Um, but the second criminal has a very different attitude, doesn't he? Because the second criminal recognizes that he doesn't deserve to be saved. The second criminal recognizes that he deserves this condemnation. And not only that, but he also recognizes that Jesus does not deserve condemnation. I think what the second criminal has that the first criminal doesn't have is humility. And one way of describing that humility is the fear of the Lord. The second criminal seems to show genuine regret for his sin. He knows he sinned, and he wishes that he hadn't. I don't think anyone, as they're getting crucified, would say, I deserve this, unless they felt genuine regret for their sin. So the second criminal knows he's done wrong, and he regrets it. And he recognizes, because of that, that his only hope is the grace of God. And so knowing that, he asks Jesus for grace. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So all that said, I want to give us a little warning here, because I think there is a warning uh, for us in this passage. Uh, some people will hear this story, and they'll think, well, this is great. You know, I can live a life of total disregard for God's commands. I can be a, a, a raging hedonist. I can do things that are bad enough to warrant crucifixion. And if at the end of my life I just go, oh, sorry, God, then I'll be good. I'll be able to enter paradise. I can have my cake and eat it too. Sweet. But here's the warning. Don't forget, the second criminal did feel this genuine regret for his sin. Uh, and I think that if we plan our lives intending to have some sort of deathbed conversion, uh, that when the time comes to say, sorry, God, we might not actually mean it. And when we say sorry to God, we do have to mean it. Uh, most of us understand that in normal human relationships, insincere sorries don't work, right? They don't help to mend a broken relationship. For example, if we have a sense that someone is just saying sorry, not because they actually feel bad for hurting us, but just because they're sorry they got caught, then that sorry isn't going to do us any good. Um, another kind of insincere sorry is when someone says, I'm sorry that bothered you. Uh, it's insincere because there's just no admission that anything wrong was done, right? You might as well just say, I'm so, I wish you didn't get upset when I do what I want. <laughs> it's, it's not effective. But, but a sincere sorry uh, comes from a heart that recognizes that a wrong has been committed and regrets it. And that's the kind of sorry that we need to be able to say to God. That's a sorry of real, real repentance. And so if we live our lives just kind of banking on, you know, I'm going to have a deathbed conversion, I'm just going to say sorry in the end, um, then when that time comes, I'm concerned that the sorry we offer might really be more of a sorry I got caught or um, sorry that bothered you, God. Uh, and that's not the kind of sorry that can heal a broken relationship. So my encouragement is this. If, if you feel genuine regret for sin now, um, don't wait to say sorry to God. You know, start living a life of faith now because you might not be capable of genuinely saying sorry later. You don't know what's going to happen to your heart in the meantime.
So act now rather than later. And I want to be clear, I'm not saying that God does not have radical grace available for us. I'm not saying that there are never any genuine last-minute deathbed conversions. I'm not saying that God is slow to accept our sorries. I'm not saying any of that. Um, I'm just saying, act now, not later. You know, you don't know what's going to happen to your heart in the meantime. So, okay. So we've got one other saying from the cross to look at today. Uh, this one comes from the Gospel of John, uh, John 19, starting in verse 26. John 19, 26. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. It's a lot of Marys. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. So what's going on here? Well, in Jesus' day, uh, women were very dependent on their husbands and families for financial support. Uh, women didn't really have uh, the education or, or resources to be able to support themselves. And so Mary was in a really tough position here because, one, we have every indication that at this point in her life, she was a widow. Because uh, we don't hear anything about Joseph after the birth narratives. So at some point during Jesus' childhood or early adulthood, uh, Joseph, it appears, had died. And what was custom was that if your husband was gone, your eldest son would be the next in line to care for you. Uh, but right now, Mary is seeing her eldest son dying. So Mary's in a, in a really tough spot, and Jesus does what a good son would do in that moment. He, he makes sure that his mother is cared for. Uh, as he's being crucified, he sees his mother, and he also sees, quote, the disciple whom Jesus loved uh, standing nearby. Uh, if you're not familiar with that phrase, that title, it appears six times in the book of John, and uh, traditionally, it's believed to be a reference to John himself. So when John is writing his gospel and he refers to himself, he calls him himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And this is an aside, but I was thinking about that this morning, and I was thinking about how it can seem kind of arrogant, you know, just, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. But I think it might have actually been a humble thing when John was saying that, because I think what he might have been trying to do was, rather than just inserting himself in the text, he was trying to make it clear that his whole identity was so, sort of lost at this point, just in the fact that his identity is rooted in the fact that Jesus loved him. You know, he, he's, he's not even John. He is the disciple whom Jesus loved. I think that might be going on there. Or maybe John was just like, well, I'm the disciple Jesus loved. I, I'm not sure. But <laughs> so, um, so Jesus looks and he sees his mother Mary, and, and John. And, um, and he basically says, Mom, consider John your son. And, and John, consider Mary your mother. And we're told that that's what they did. John took Mary into his home. So what is the significance of this? Um, 
Well, for one thing, we see Jesus fulfilling the law here, right? The law says, honor your father and mother. And right here, we, we see Jesus honoring his mother, making sure that she's taken care of. And we also just see on a, on a very human level that Jesus cares about his mom. He loves his mom. You know, he's demonstrating this love and concern for her by making sure that she's cared for by someone that he really trusts. And again, because Jesus is the exact representation of God's being, uh, he is also at the same time demonstrating the love and concern that God has for everyone who's in need. Um, in the book of James, it says, the religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's looking after a widow in her distress. I think we also see a reminder of the humanity of Jesus. Uh, it's important for us to remember, yes, Jesus is fully divine, but he's also fully human. And most human beings, when they are dying, uh, are thinking about their families. I read a, an article by a, a hospice chaplain recently, and she was talking about she, how she spends the majority of her time talking to people about their families. That's what they want to talk about at the end of their lives. Uh, and so I think there's something very human and very beautiful about the fact that in Jesus' last moments, he's caring for his mom. Okay. And again, it's the exact representation of God's being. So, three sayings from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. And dear woman, here is your son. Here is your mother. Three of, the, three of the things that the exact representation of God's being says when he's under incredible stress. Three, three revelations, windows, that we can look through to see the character of God. And I want us to notice something that links all three of these things. There is, a, I think, a, a thematic tie to these three sayings, which is that you could describe all of them as other-focused. You know, one is focused on those who are crucifying him, one is focused on the criminal being crucified, and one is focused on his mom. So with all three of them, Jesus is expressing concern for someone other than himself, uh, including some people who are very unde undeserving of that concern. And that's very interesting to me, because, I mean, if I were being crucified, I would like to think that I would be able to think about other people as that was going on. Uh, but I, I suspect that in the midst of that unbelievable distress and pain, I would probably be thinking primarily about myself. And if I did any praying, I don't think I would be praying for the forgiveness of my crucifiers. Uh, I think I'd be praying at best for relief from my pain. I might be praying that death would come quickly. Um, at worst, I might be praying for the judgment and condemnation of my tormentors. But that's not what we see with Jesus. With Jesus, we see a concern for others. Right? We see love. And how amazing is it that that is the exact representation of God's being? You might remember how last week we talked about uh, how God commands us to love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all our mind, all our strength. The greatest commandment that Jesus gave. Um, we're supposed to worship him wholeheartedly. And we talked a little bit about how some people hear that 
and they think, well, how selfish and egotistical of God to command that we give him all of ourselves like that. Um, well, if you have ever felt, even for a moment, that that objection had merit to it, consider the cross. Remember the cross. That's what I would encourage you to do. Remember these sayings that Jesus made on the cross. Does God command our wholehearted worship? Yes, absolutely, he does. But that same God also suffers and dies in our place. And he does so while being stunningly other-focused. So nothing and no one is more worthy of our worship than him. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we stand in awe of who you have revealed yourself to be. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to, not just to be aware of it, but, but to feel it, to experience it, uh, to know it, not just in our minds, but in our hearts. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is uh, so ready and willing to forgive us. Uh, we thank you that you are a God that, that has, has grace for us, who loves us, uh, who cares for those who are in distress. And uh, Lord, uh, we acknowledge that we need your grace, that we can't do it on our own. And uh, we celebrate this time of year um, and all, always uh, your willingness to die in our place. God, we pray that uh, you would help us to, to recognize that uh, more and more, especially during this time of year. In Jesus' name, amen.